I'm going to review a little more than I would have normally. Part two of Esther, but last week we were introduced to a young woman called Hadassah. Her Persian name was Esther. She was destined by God for a very critical role. It's now about 480 B.C., and a new king reigns over the Medo-Persian Empire. Some 76 years earlier, Cyrus the Great had conquered Babylon and told all the Jews that were living there, if they wanted to, they could go home. He even says in Ezra 1 that he was appointed by God to do that very thing and that God had given him all the power he had. He knew exactly who had allowed him to win these victories. In fact, in Isaiah, it says he's going to open the, the gates and take the bars down everywhere he went. God would go before him. And so I think Cyrus knew that. And somehow he knew that these Jews that had been captive there all these years needed to go home, or they should be allowed to go home. So he told them they could. And you would think that they'd all want to go home. But, of course, some had been there their whole lives. They had been born there. They had no affinity back toward Judah or Jerusalem. They'd never worshipped in the old temple. And the people that had were very old. And they might want to go back. They might have. But who would want to give up everything you had, quit your job, sell your home, lose your business, as we talked about, leave the Medo-Persian school district, and go across a barren desert full of bandits to a place that's in ruins, and you've got no place to live there, no business there, and there are people there that hate you and want to, would like to kill you too. So it wasn't a very appealing thing. So probably just as many or more Jews decided to stay where they were. And unfortunately, they had become comfortable in the Medo-Persian culture. It had had its effect on them, just as our culture has its effect on us. And we're going to see as we go through this, little examples of where the culture affected them. For example, when Esther is given the food in the harem, she apparently eats whatever is given to her, especially the good stuff. How did Daniel react to that when they offered him that kind of food? He wouldn't take it because he had some, he had some standards of stuff he wouldn't eat. Apparently she didn't have any of those standards. A little later we're going to see Mordecai. He never mentions prayer at all. He talks about things that she's got to do and things they ought to do and fasting, but he never mentions prayer. In fact, he never mentions God, at least not in the account here. Yet we know that he knows God is going to have to intercede or they won't make it. It's been interesting how the culture affects us. It's subtle. For example, you may be watching a television program that has some nudity in it and homosexuals encounters, but it's really popular and in Next day's Bible study, it's going to be one of the hot topics everybody's going to want to talk about. And if you haven't watched it, you're going to be out of the loop. So, and it's, it's intriguing. It's titillating. And you like kind of want to look forward to the next episode. Satan just kind of likes us to get comfortable in the culture. And these Jews had gotten comfortable in theirs. But what does Paul and Peter both say about that? You're a chosen race. This is Peter talking. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. I urge you, as aliens and strangers, to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. And then Paul, don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good 
acceptable and perfect. Esther's family was among those that decided to stay. And I guess not too long after that, when she was probably a very young girl, both parents died. And her older cousin Mordecai, her uncle's son, decided to raise her as his own daughter, and he does. And the current king, Cyrus, reigns over the most powerful empire of the time, 127 provinces, of which Judah is one, which is going to come into play a little later. And to plan an upcoming campaign against Greece, because he'd lost two earlier battles, he invites all his officials to come to Susa, the capital, for a big, long, six-month celebration of his jubilee of three or four years in power and also there I'm sure during the day they're doing a lot of planning about where they're going to get their troops and how they'll be provisioned and how they're going to attack Greece but he holds this six months celebration and the last week is really something because he holds a feast for everybody in the town every person in the city of Susa which must have been a rather large city was invited for seven days or nights to come to the banquet to eat everything they wanted and there was plenty of food for everybody Plenty of wine. Nobody was, there was no pressure to drink very much or not drink. You could do what you wanted to, but it cost a fortune. And, of course, part of his reasoning was in order to prove to the people that he was a very benevolent, good ruler, that he had their hearts, their, their welfare at heart. He wanted the best for them. He was honest. It didn't matter who you were, poor or rich, you would be treated fairly. And that, too, will come into play later in the story. That's the image he wants to portray. And the last night of the whole thing, it's, everybody's about to go home tomorrow, and he realizes there's a treasure they haven't yet seen. It's the queen, Vashti. So he's feeling no pain. He's had several wineskins now by this time, and even had to go to the bathroom a couple of times. And so he's feeling pretty good, and he says, why don't we just have her come and let them see her? in all her glory. So he sends word for her to show up, and the Hebrew wording can well be translated that she was to show up wearing only her crown, nothing else. Well, that didn't go well with Vashti. She's had a few wineskins herself. She's feeling a little bit strong. And even if he didn't ask her to come nude, she felt like she was being paraded like a show horse for all these drunken rabble, and she didn't want to do that. And if he was asking her to come nude, then she's treating her like a stripper, and she really detests that, so she doesn't go. And maybe she thinks he must be pretty confident of how she stands with him because she feels, well, he'll, when she didn't show up, he'll think it over what he asked, and he'll realize it was really not right, and it won't matter. He'll get over it. He'll, he'll let it go. But he isn't thinking rationally. She has embarrassed him before he's all these important VIPs from all over the kingdom, and he looks like a jerk in their mind, in their eyes, and he immediately says, boy, this is bad news, and his counselors agree with him. If this isn't punished, this disease that she has just exhibited is going to spread through the whole kingdom, and before long there won't be a wife anywhere who will fix a meal for her husband or rub his feet when he comes home from a long day at the feast of the king, and nothing will happen that should happen. There'll be all kinds of now chapters forming everywhere, and, and so they, they can't have that. Well, he banishes her. He sends an edict out that night, signs it, sends it out, or I guess the next day, but it sends it out anyway, 
to all the provinces, and she is banished to somewhere way away from Susa. He'll never see her again. She forfeits her crown, and now he's moping around because he sobers up the next day and feels really bad about it. He thinks that was a knee-jerk reaction, really stupid way to react. I shouldn't have done that. I should never make those kind of decisions when I'm a little tipsy. And I, why was I listening to those guys? They were just, ah, it was bad news, bad counsel, bad decision. And he's moping around, and everybody realizes that's not good when he mopes because he might lash out at you if you're the wine bearer, and that could be bad too. So they kind of come up with something that will cheer him up. So they come up with a plan where the Department of Interior will search out all the really good-looking virgins in the land, and they'll come to Susa. They'll have a year of beauty, social graces makeover, and then each one will spend one night with the king, and whoever pleases him the most will take Vashti's crown. And the king thinks that's a pretty good idea. And Esther is selected because Scripture says she's really good looking. She's beautiful. She has a good figure. She obviously is very easygoing and sure of herself. In fact, she's confident enough to where people take a liking to her immediately. And when she's in the harem, the main eunuch really likes her a lot, gets her the best food, best oils, best, gives her seven of the best servants. She always gets the best material for her gowns. So she's beautiful when she finally has time to go to, when her time comes after the year. And of course, she wins the contest because, as we all know, the contest was fixed. That wasn't a fair contest. She was going to win all along because God was orchestrating this whole thing. He wants his handmaiden to be queen of Medo-Persia instead of Vashti when a crisis arises that's going to need her to intercede on behalf of his people. So that brings us now to where we are tonight. And it begins with chapter 2, verses 21 and 20, 21 through 23. This is while Esther is in her year of waiting. Mordecai is at the king's gate. Apparently he has gained some kind of a, it's possible, a little minor governmental official job, and he's there, but the business is conducted at the king's gate, and he's there every day, but he's also there because he's worried about her. Uh, there's a bad downside to this contest. If, if she doesn't win it, she goes to a second harem and can never, ever leave it. She'll be in there the rest of her life. Can't ever have, can't marry or have children. So he's kind of concerned about her, wants to know how she's getting along. And in this place where he is, he gets to know a lot of the palace officials. And then this happens. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Victim and Teresh, two of the king's officials from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Assyrus. And the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and, informed, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of Chronicles in the king's presence. That's only a three-verse summary of what went on. Now when you look a little deeper into that, the, word, the Hebrew word for gallows there can be translated post and the preferred method of execution in those days in that culture was not to be hanged. It was to be impaled on a post. Very gruesome. But it was a deterrent. I mean, boy, you, knowing that could happen to you, you would watch your step. 
And anyway, that's what happens to these two guys. It's, they're not, there's no long wait on death row. They get what's coming to them. And Scripture is very careful to tell us that everything about it is recorded, including what is recorded. That it was Mordecai that did it. Now, interestingly enough, at this point, Mordecai is not rewarded. Now, if he had been rewarded right here, the whole story would have taken a whole different twist. It would have gone a whole different direction. But he's not rewarded. So there's a bureaucratic oversight, and they just don't reward him. So we'll find out later how important that is. But, you know, it's interesting. Since God decided that, or, made it, or orchestrated this such that Mordecai was not rewarded, would it be possible that in your life, Something has happened to you where you deserved recognition, but you didn't get it. Somebody else got the promotion that you should you deserved, or somebody else got the accolades on a business deal or whatever it was, and you should have had it, but you didn't. Now, could God be working with you the way he was with Mordecai? I wonder what Mordecai thought. They don't care. I mean, I'm not turning this plot in. Come on, I should be a hero. Well, he kind of was, I imagine, to the palace people. But nobody else seemed to care. Anyway, now comes this evil guy called Haman. Chapters 3, verses 1 through 4. And I'm going to read it so it will be on this recording. After these events, King Assyrus promoted Haman, the son of Hamathida, the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. Oh, and all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why are you transgressing the king's command? Now when they had spoken daily to him and he would not listen, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand. For he had told them he was a Jew. Now isn't it interesting that he was very careful to tell Esther, Don't reveal that you're Jewish. Don't do it. Why? Because it might have clouded the official's thinking. She might not have been able to make the final cut of the contest. Something He thought something could be, just be some uh, bias against her. And yet here he just blurts out he's a Jew. And, of course, up to this point, apparently nobody knew he was. They knew he wasn't bowing, and they didn't know why, but now he tells them why. He says, because I'm a Jew, and I probably, like, I don't bow to anybody but God or maybe to the king himself. I'm not going to bow to this Amalekite jerk. Now, another little detail is given here, which is really important, and that's that he's an Agagite. Now, who was Agag? Does anybody know who Agag was? Well, Down Glenn would know. He was a... Well, he was the... He was the king that 600 years earlier, Saul had been ordered to kill, to attack the Amalekites, wipe them out. Don't keep anything for yourself. None of the sheep or goats or cattle or nothing. And kill them all. And he didn't kill Agag. And later, now, he says in, in the scripture it talks about, Saul says, well, I did. And he probably thinks he did. But I have a hunch that he wasn't diligent with it. He was too busy looting them to look out for all, find all the people who were in hiding, and some of them must have survived. And this guy could well be a direct descendant of 
Agag. If he does, then he has a genetic hatred for Jews because, of course, they hated the Jews for what they had done to him. Because Samuel then killed Agag because he had not, uh, Saul had not obeyed. And God, in effect, told Saul, well, that's it. You know, what I want from you is obedience. Don't, don't, he said, well, I've got all these cattle so we can sacrifice. No, no, he didn't want sacrifice. He wants obedience from you. And he hadn't done it. Now, that's a little detail. It's possible that this guy was really from a district of the one of the 127 districts of Medo-Persia called Agag. There supposedly was one. It might have been that he was just from that area, and that's the only reference he has to why he was called an Agagite. But if he was, if he is really a descendant of Agag, and if Saul had done what he should have done, this guy wouldn't even be alive. But he is alive. Six centuries later, because Saul didn't do something he was commanded to do. Think about the Philistines. They were a thorn in the Jews' side all the time they were in the Holy Land, the Promised Land. Why was that? Because Joshua didn't do something he was ordered to do when they went into the land. They were supposed to finish the job. They were supposed to get rid of all the Canaanites. Don't let anything that breathes over there unless I tell you differently. And once in a while he would. He'd allow them to keep some cattle or something so he could feed the people. But when he said, if I don't tell you differently, then I don't want anything that breathes to, to live over there because they're so polluted. And you know, he said, well, boy, that was a harsh command. Well, if you bring a child into your home that has leprosy, is that child going to get well? No, but what's going to happen to everybody in your family? You're going to get leprosy. And that's exactly the way he looked at it. They were so polluted that if they brought those kids, even the little ones, into their home, they'd have been polluted in some way in God's eyes. Well, Joshua, they got tired of just killing people and killing people and fighting and losing a few people of their own. Finally, they just didn't. They sort of quit. And they left the Philistines alone. And what happened all the rest of the time they were in? Now, let's just take that today. Let's say that Jesus commands us to do something that we, don't, we find somewhat unpleasant. Certainly, that was unpleasant. Church discipline is unpleasant. Now, let's say that a man in a local church is about to leave his wife. And in Matthew 18, it says what we're supposed to do about that. But the church he attends pictures himself as seeker-friendly. And they say, you know, we're a loving, forgiving, and non-judgmental church. We don't shame and shoot our wounded like you fundamentalists do. And so they don't do it. They just welcome the guy. He's, oh, I'm sure he'll repent someday. Well, he doesn't repent, and he goes right on. Now, if if they had followed through with what he was there supposed to do, he would have repented, and he would have stayed with his wife, and the whole picture would have turned out differently. As it was, he didn't. He stayed right on the course he was on. He marries a sexy woman to whom he's attracted. He has two children. They turn out to be avowed atheists, and in the Later years, they have a great influence on a man who runs for president and is elected. Now, what's, I mean, that's an extreme example. But disobedience by the man and by the church had repercussions that affected a great number of people down through the years just because they didn't do what they were supposed to do, just like these guys. Saul didn't do what he was to Joshua didn't do that. Well, let's go back to Haman now. He's full of himself. He really thinks a lot of himself. And we, we, when we read on down here, he, he, was, um, 
he was just always taking, had the nicest clothes, and he had them pressed every day. He rode in the king's chariots and all around. He was just really pulling himself. And, but this one thing really bugged him, and this guy, just one guy, wouldn't bow. And I guess by this time, Mordecai is probably pretty well known in the palace, and he, he, Haman realizes, I can't, he's sort of a hero. can't attack him directly. He is a Jew. Now, he doesn't know the relationship between Mordecai and Esther. At least we don't think he knows that because we don't know that he doesn't know she's Jewish. Nobody knows that. So nobody apparently knows that relationship. And he does know that Mordecai is a Jew. He can't get him, but if there's a will, there's a way. So what does he do? He comes up with a plan. And what is the plan? Verse 8. Well, first, let's go back to verse 6. He disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were, the Jews. And Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom. Now, stop for a second and ponder that one thing. Throughout the whole kingdom, who did that include? Judah. So, who's behind this? Who's the power motivating Haman to do what he's doing? Satan. Satan. He has to be. Because way back in Genesis, God told Satan, there's going to become a seed that is going to crush your head. And boy, he has been doing everything he can all through the centuries since to try to wipe out the woman, the Jewish race, from whom the seed was going to come. How many times did he do it? Well, first he started with Cain, killed Abel. That took out 50% of her male descendants at that point. Then a little bit later in Egypt, he has Pharaoh do what? Kill all the boy babies. Wipe them out. Doesn't work. Here, Haman comes up with a plot. It's going to get them all. It'll get the ones in Jerusalem. It'll get the ones in Judah, too. It'll wipe out the whole Jewish race if this is successful. Not just the ones in, in Susa. So we know who's behind it. Now, when that doesn't work for Satan... How far? He doesn't give up, though. When the seed is born, what does he do? He has Herod go to Bethlehem and do what? Kill all the male babies. Try to get that seed. Before Jesus said, I'm going to be raised up and I'll draw all men into myself. And be sure that doesn't happen. He tries to motivate the Roman soldiers to beat Jesus to death in the beating. He said, nobody's ever looked like that and survived it. He intended for them to kill him right there. Because if they'd have killed him right there, he's not going to be raised up on a cross. He'll be thrown in a grave with a bunch of criminals. He won't be buried with a rich man like Isaiah 53 says. None of that prophecy will come true. He's going to win this. It never works. He can't outmaneuver God. It's not going to work this time either. Well, he decides that the only way to do this is to get this kingdom-wide decree. So he's going to have to get the king's permission. So he goes in to see him and he says something like this. Verse 8 of chapter 3. There's a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other people, and they don't observe the king's laws. It's just not in the king's interest to let them remain. If it's pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver of my own money into the hands of those who carry out the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. Okay. Can't get Mordecai directly, but you can get them all if you can get, you get him too, if you get all the Jews. 
He doesn't realize, of course, that that would involve Esther. And why does this plan appeal to the king? Well, he's a little ultra-sensitive right now. What was just uncovered against him? A plot. Now, Haman is director of Homeland Security. Part of his job is to uncover plots against the king. And when he comes up with this little scheme and talks about these people, he doesn't name who they are. He just talks about them. The king is saying, boy, maybe this is another group of these people. We just had one. I can't have another one. And not only that, this guy's willing to put his own money in here and do it and pay for it. Now, 10,000 talents of silver by some commentators was over 100,000 pounds of silver, which can you imagine what that would be worth today? It was millions of dollars today. It was a vast sum then. This guy was very wealthy. His position of number two in the kingdom, I'm sure he used that to you know, all kinds of kickbacks. He'd become quite wealthy. He can afford to do it, and so that's what he does. And it very much appeals to the king. So he says, okay, uh, here's a signet ring. You can seal the document with this, with this authority. It'll look just like it came from me. I'm with you in this deal. Take care of it. And then they sit down over drinks, which is kind of amazing. I guess they were kind of celebrating the fact that another of these plots had been nipped in the bud. Anyway, letters go to all the king's provinces to destroy and kill and enlighten all the Jews, women, children, in one day. And this is along about a year out. It's only about a year away. And he had found that date, of course, by Haman's very superstitious. So he had had lots cast back in chapter 2 called the Pur. They had cast lots, and his soothsayers had decided what day was the better one. So he wanted to be real sure the gods were all in his favor, so he... Let them decide today. And, but it's some time away, and that's going to work in the Jews' favor later. But right now, they're very distressed, as you can imagine. When word of this hits the streets, chapter 4, when Mordecai learned all had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out of the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. When he went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate in sackcloth. And in every, each and every province where the command decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, fasting, weeping, wailing, many laying on sackcloth and ashes. Well, Esther just hears the commotion out in the city. I'm sure the city is in quite an uproar. There's a bunch of people that are celebrating because they hate the Jews. And there's a bunch of people that are, of course, weeping and wailing because they are apparently just at the mercy. So far... Nothing has been said about whether they can defend themselves. Apparently they can't. They're just at the mercy of whoever wants to take their life. And when you really think about it, Donald Trump would like this plan because it's going to get rid of all the illegal aliens in that country. You know, can't you just see some guy saying, you're going to get yours, Levi. I can hardly wait for next month or next year. You illegal aliens take all our jobs, send your kids to our school. We're going to get rid of you in once and for all. So President Trump, when he issues that decree in January of 2017, don't be surprised. It is going to cause an uproar just like it did in Susa. I hope I'm kidding. Anyway, Esther hears this commotion, and she wants to know what's going on. So she sees it, finds out that he, the old Mordecai is in sackcloth, and 
she can't have him come anywhere where she could even talk to him dressed like that, so she sends out better clothes, and he won't take them. Instead, he sends in a copy of the edict. And it, by then, now she sees the seriousness of this. And somehow he knows, maybe it's in the edict, we don't know that. It could be secret. But he has inside sources that know how much money Haman has paid of his own. It could be he might have even said something to the king like, well, it didn't cost that much. Well, just keep the balance in there for a contingency for any future plots or something. And I'm sure a source is saying, boy, that Haman's doing a great job. Man, he's putting his money where his mouth is. Well, he's all for this, but he doesn't know who the people are, nor how that's going to make him look. Well, so what does Mordecai tell her to do? Mordecai told him all that happened, the exact amount of money Haman had promised. This is verse 7 of chapter 4, to the king's treasure for destruction of Jews. He also gave a copy of the text of the edict, which had been issued in Susa for their destruction. He might show it Esther and inform her in order for her to go to the king to implore his favor and plead with him for her people. And Hathak came back, related Mordecai's words to Esther. And Esther, of course, says, wait now just a minute, let's tell him something. Uh, you don't know how it works in here, cousin. Nobody just goes barging in to see the king. If you're unannounced and uninvited, and he doesn't hold out his golden scepter to you, you are toast. And he hasn't asked for me in a month. I could be on his blacklist. I don't know what I've done, maybe nothing, but... He hadn't asked for me, and I, I just I feel kind of insecure about this whole thing. And I, this is not a good time for me to go barging in there unannounced. I just don't know about this. And so what does Mordecai say? Verse 13. Do not imagine that you're in the king's palace, you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews, although she probably would have. For if you remain silent this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. And you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Well, he's right. She is in that position for this very moment. This, this is her moment of destiny. Her, her whole life has been built around this time. She's going to do something that's going to affect the Jews throughout the entire kingdom. It's very important. She's been made as beautiful as she is. She's been given the position, all this, until she can do what she's going to have to do. And so since she replies back, well, okay. Go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susan. Fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens will also fast in the same way. And thus I'll go in to see the king, which is not according to the law, and then, of course, these magnificent words that finish it up. And if I perish, I perish. Can you think of anybody else that said a statement like that? Something like that when faced with probable death from the ruler? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what'd they say? Well, if you throw us in that furnace, our God can deliver us. But if he doesn't, I'm still not going to bow down to your stupid golden idol out there. And they got thrown in the fiery furnace, and God did preserve them. Well, she's going to have to go into a fiery furnace of her own. It's going to turn out not to be so fiery, but she doesn't know that right now. As far as she's concerned, this could have a very bad ending. Next time, we're going to look at a scene that Hollywood would just love. And this is where Esther, in her royal blue dress, 
with the sun shining behind her, backlit from a special window that just happens to the sun shining, suit is shining behind her, and she's going to go in to see the king. She hadn't slept all night. She didn't look too good, but a lot of makeup covers all that. So she's going to go in to see him, and we're going to see what happens and how God has prepared the king to have a loving feeling toward her, because he really does. He's just, she's going to find a welcome king there. But he hadn't sent for her in a month, and you can imagine now, she's the queen. She only comes when he asks for her. He can ask for all, any other maiden from the, the harem, and he probably has at times. And that probably didn't make her feel too good, but he hadn't asked for her. So he's, she's just not real confident about how she stands at this moment. But she's going to do it anyway. So we're going to see a couple of scenes next time that are just made for Hollywood. That one, the one where she goes in to see the king, the other one where she points the finger at him. And, the, the look, and then the third one was when the king tells him to lead the horse with Mordecai, on, give him all the honor he thought was going to come to himself. And you can just imagine the look on his face is, oh. And then he begins to think, this thing's going off track. What's, what's going on? I can't do anything to that guy. No matter what I think, it never works. And that's what you're going to, we'll find all about that. Now, that's next time. You've got to come back next week to hear all about that. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this marvelous story of a brave young woman who was your handmaiden for sure. You chose her, you prepared her, but she followed through. Mordecai was faithful too. He told her the truth, even though he knew it might cost her her life. But even if it did, he knew that somehow you would, you would, rescue all the Jews no matter where they were because you had promised that from Abraham you were going to make their descendants like the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky and that couldn't happen if they got wiped out and you knew that and you weren't going to let that happen and Haman wasn't going to be able to pull this off no matter how he and his master Satan tried to outmaneuver you they never can never could never will so we thank you for that we thank you for that in our lives how you you told us we pray to protect us from the evil one and we want you to do that because we know he's like a roaring lion he's out there trying to lure us into the culture's trap just like he did those people and we don't want to fall victim to that we want to be faithful to you true to you believe your promises and then have you say to us when we finally see you like you did to Esther I'm sure well done good and faithful servant in your name we pray Lord Jesus